Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we take a look at our upcoming readings for our Sunday Divine Service. That also drives the ship for our daily devotions and our worship for the upcoming week. Today we're looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity, and uh, this is this is one of my favorite Sundays in the church year, and it's also one of the most frustrating Sundays in the church year, because the readings, uh, the gospel, the Old Testament, the epistle, the introit, the gradual, all of them are so great that it is really, really difficult to decide what to preach on. And so I uh, hope we can bring a little bit of a flavor for the joy and uh, the magnitude of Trinity 11. Pastor, we are back again in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, one thing I've noticed in the years that we've um, uh, been, been doing the one-year series, and I think it's 10 years now at Good Shepherd or, or about, um, that the Trinity season... Uh, while it moves around in all the Gospels, it spends uh, a significant amount of time in the Gospel of Luke. Have, have you noticed that? And if you have or haven't, uh, any any comments on that? Well, I think it does. Um, I mean, it doesn't leave out Matthew or Mark either, and we definitely have John uh, during particular times of the year. But uh, I think it's good to get Luke because we do have Luke also uh, that continues on after the ascension of Christ into the uh, beginnings of the church by one author covering that entire time period. Uh, It also allows us to... um, be more certain, uh, if that's the right way to say it. Of course, we believe the scriptures are true, uh, but it, it's written by a guy who was with St. Paul when he wrote a lot of his letters as well, and so it gives us a certain amount of certainty that the theology and the history of the uh, life of Christ and of the church go together and that they are united as one. Luke the physician, Luke the historian, um, it is uh we certainly don't want to pit one book of the Bible against the other 65, but it is a uh, marvelous gospel, and I'll just throw out that if you're looking for a book of the Bible to do some extra reading, studying, meditating, devotional time in, maybe this summer the Gospel of Luke might be that place for you. Vicar, our reading is Luke 18, 9 to 14. I think many people, even outside of Christianity, are familiar with this particular text. Give us a read, would you please? Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. Uh, Familiar words, the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the Pharisee and the publican, if you're uh, of the King James uh, variety. The the difference is uh, very, very stark. The... uh, the key here is justification. We're talking about how one is justified. We're all masters. We all have a uh, self-proclaimed and self-earned PhD in self-justification. It's called original sin. And uh, this manifests itself uh, in, in kind of a, an unusual and yet a common way all the same time. This is a parable. Jesus is teaching in parables as he often does. And it's interesting, Pastor, early on in verse 9 of our text from Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Why is that preface that little caveat at the beginning of the parable, why is that important for us to keep in mind as we hear, study, and learn these words from the Gospel of Luke? Well, um, it's important for us to keep in mind because there are still people that do that today. I think um, we, we have this great quote from Luther a long time ago that Christ comes only for sinners. Uh, and the idea then is that we need to be sinners or at least be willing to admit that we are sinners. So often today our... Uh, our world people do look upon others with contempt and they do view themselves as righteous. I think that's one of the big weaknesses and problems in churches, for example, like the ELCA uh, or others who condemn people for not being uh, social justice warriors and yet uh, ignore the actual words of Christ and and the scriptures about particular sins and the uh, order of how things are supposed to be in the world. And so um, there are these people still today, and so it's important for us to address it directly and to be bold and yet still loving with the gospel of Christ. Yeah, there are people like this still today because I'm one of them, you're one of them, Vicar's one of them. We all have this inside of us, and I don't want to say it's a potential to sin, but we all have the seed of every sin inside of us, And but by the grace of God, uh, this sin does not uh, explode and manifest itself in the world. Uh, Why do these two go together? Trusting in yourself for righteousness and treating others with contempt. That uh, those are two sides to the same coin. Well, uh, lots of things to say. First off, you know, the first commandment uh, teaches us that whatever we fear, love, and trust in is our God. And, and when we fear, love, and trust in ourselves, then we think we're our own God. And when we think we're our own God, then we think we have the authority to judge other people and to compare them to both ourselves and then also to um, each other. And so uh, when we think we're our own God, we think we have the ability to determine who's good and who's not, rather than to listen to Christ's word that's very clear, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and uh, deserve punishment because of it, but are justified freely by the work of Jesus Christ crucified and risen to take away the sin of the world. The uh, You mentioned it before, the uh, social justice warrior mentality that is uh, permeating our society right now. Uh, sometimes you'll see that uh, SJW, 
uh, acronym, and uh, if you're like me, you had to look it up to see what it was at first. But uh, there, this is um, this is gaining more and more. Uh, I know uh, some some people are excited and some people are mad when uh, when social justice warriors are called Karens. Uh, but um, you know, you're so concerned about somebody else's sin and somebody else's behavior or at least what you perceive to be sin or bad behavior, that you attack them, you mock them, you ridicule them, you post on social media about them, but you have a hard time looking in the mirror. And I think that is a very, very well brought out in this particular parable. And I think if you uh, doubt this is reality, just look at uh, children, right? When my kids are fighting with each other and both are equally guilty, they don't talk about themselves as sinners, but instead they tell us what the other one did. And you have to stop them and say, no, listen, what did you do? What what was your act in this? Well, he was hitting me, and so then I, right? And it's always that little self-justificating, justificating, justifying that's going on. And uh, this uh, parable says it's not just kids that do that. No, it's not just kids. Uh, we all do it. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Now, that's a good thing, right? Going yeah. to church, that, that's a good thing. Right. Okay. So um, one, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. We have Jesus telling this parable. We, we could not get two more opposite extremes. Pharisees are well-respected. They, uh, they are religious people. They are religious leaders, maybe like uh, an elder or someone that's a member of the church council or a pastor today. And then you have the tax collector who is considered a uh, political traitor, who is uh, assumed to be a thief or crooked or corrupt, um, someone who has a very, very low social standing. And so Jesus is uh, setting uh, this uh, polarity, these parameters here. You got a really good guy and a really bad guy, a scoundrel, and they both go to church. Now, it's good that they go to church. Uh, and we begin here with the Pharisee and with the time that we have, Pastor, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, I've seen some translations that uh, take this, uh, this Greek uh, formulation here, this middle voice, and they would imply that he was not only standing by himself, but he was praying with himself or praying to himself. Um, comments on that? Yeah, that would be, uh, it's hard for us to understand, right? Um, but in the ancient world, your inner monologue, you didn't always do it inner monologue uh, So if you're praying, you don't pray in your heart, you don't pray silently in your head you prayed out loud that was the way you did it it's the way you read too you didn't read in your mind you read out loud and so you did these things out loud all the time and so even saying this man is off doing it by himself in his own mind um, that also teaches you what he feels about his sin that he has shame that he um, is nervous about it and uncomfortable with it and that that's kind of a sign of true repentance we see the same thing with adam and eve in the garden of eden when they fall into sin, they try to hide it. They try to cover it up. 
with uh, leaves and things like that. And this man, in that sense, is doing the same thing. Not that that action of uh, contrition is the thing that justifies, but it shows that he truly is contrite about his sin. He offers his confession to God. That's a good thing. And then he comes with thanksgiving. But instead of giving thanksgiving for all of the blessings that God has given him, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Uh, what's the problem here, Pastor? Well, number one, his statement uh, judges the other people and tells us what he thinks about them as individuals, that uh, he's better than they are and that they're worse than he is, which is against what the Scripture teaches. Uh, I mean, even in the Psalms, this guy obviously, even though he's a religious leader, doesn't know what the Psalms say, that um, uh, surely from uh, uh, my mother's womb was I born sinful and, and conceived guilty. Uh, he doesn't believe that, and so his words are denying a lack of faith in what God's Word says and his own sinfulness, but rather he thinks he has justified himself. And uh, that's always a problem, folks. Uh, when we compare ourselves to others, we can always find somebody who's a bigger sinner, at least in our mind, than we are. But we can, when we compare ourselves to God, who is thrice holy, when we compare ourselves to God, who demands that we be perfect as he, the Lord, is perfect, that sheds a whole new light on things. We need to take a break. We'll come back and continue our look at Luke 18, 9 to 14. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. Today we're looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. We uh, introduced our gospel reading, Luke 18, 9 to 14, Jesus' very, very familiar parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and we want to continue our look at that reading. Pastor, uh, as the uh, Pharisee, sadly, um, misses the point, compares himself to other people rather than comparing himself to God and God's holy law, which says, be holy as I, the Lord, your, your God, am holy. He says, uh, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, we want to be very, very clear here that uh, to be an extortioner, to be unjust, to be an adulterer, or to be um, a corrupt uh, embezzler like many, many tax collectors were at that time. Uh, these are sins. This is not a good thing, right? Right, and, and we wouldn't say that you should purposefully do these things or that it's okay or that God suddenly... Um says that sin is uh, no longer here, right? We had that text a couple weeks ago where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. The law still applies and is still true, but our problem is, is that um, we can't 
compare ourselves um, sin for sin with other people and then hope to come to the top of the heap and that's why we're going to get to heaven because even the teeniest, tiniest, little teeny sin that we commit completely separates us from the the realm of heaven and from God's uh, grace and mercy without Jesus Christ. And so the only way we get into heaven, the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus. And that involves not comparing ourselves to others, but instead confessing the truth about ourselves. In fact, that's what the word confess really means, to say the same thing God says. He says we're sinners. We ought to say the same thing. And uh, I, I, it just amazes me that uh, sometimes people can look at a parable like this and come away with thinking that it's okay to sin. And that is not the point of the parable. And we want to be very, very clear. We are, we are not, uh, and Jesus certainly is not extolling this bad behavior. He's just uh, pointing out that comparing ourselves to other other people's bad behavior is not a true confession. He goes on, and uh, now he lauds his good works. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Uh, pastor, in the same vein, is fasting and charitable contributions, are these things, uh, are these things bad or negative? No, they're, they're good things. In fact, uh, in our catechism, we talk about fasting before we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, we, we still, as a church and a congregation, collect an offering every week, and we, we hope our members uh, give to help support the preaching of God's Word and the administration of the sacraments. Uh, there's costs associated with that, and it's good that the people of God pay for those things. Scripture itself says that um, uh, a preacher should make his living by the gospel, and that means that uh, people have to help pay for the pastor's and uh, uh, the staff of the congregation. So these are good things that we ought to do. So avoiding sin, gross sins especially, and uh, uh, doing good works, uh, contributing to the needs of the church and to the needs of others, personal piety and personal devotion, these are good things. The point is these things do not justify. They do not justify the sinner before God. Now we've got the contrast. The tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Now, that gives us the picture of humility. Am I right, Pastor? Well, um, yes, so long as we're not turning that humility into a work again. Correct. This is, this is a, a fruit of what his realization about himself is, that he has sinned. He understands that, and as a result, uh, just like, again, a child who knows that they've been caught and are in trouble, uh, oftentimes they're afraid to look you in the eye because they know they've done wrong. We have an attitude, as you so often say, depicted here. And again, we can't read his heart at this point in the parable. But we have an attitude, at least outwardly, of reverence. Correct. And that's a good thing. Okay. So, and I want to focus on his words. Uh, he wouldn't lift his eyes up to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I don't have my Greek text in front of me, but uh, the, the ESV has uh, a bit of a... Um, oh, I, I hate to put any criticism on, on English translations, but literally from the Greek, it would be, God be reconciled to me, a sinner. So the prayer of the Pharisee, God be merciful to me. In other words, don't give me what I deserve. That nuance that the word reconciliation brings to the table and to this man's confession. Pastor, 
what is reconciliation and why is that a very, very important thing to understand in the confession of the tax collector? Yeah, the, the word um, in the Greek is elaskomai, and uh, just to kind of give you an idea, it, it can also be translated propitiation, which always makes me think of uh, the Tom Hanks movie about the volcano where he's going to jump into yeah, Joe, versus the, the Joe versus the volcano. The absolute best bad movie in the history of cinema. Yeah, it used to be on Super Sunday every week as a kid. Um, and I'm sure Vicar hasn't seen it because he is a uh, he is culturally inept when it comes to the movies we've talked about. Right. So, so the, the word uh, hilas komai also uh, gives its meaning to the hilasterion or the mercy seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, the place um, where all the, of the blood, the place of, the where the blood of the sacrifice would have been placed. And so when we have this word propitiation, we have that idea in mind. Uh, and so this is... He's realizing his sin, and he's asking God to take away his sin, and he's confessing that he understands how that happens through the shedding of blood. And so actually, I'd say we see in this tax collector an example of what the faith of all the Israelites who came before the time of Christ was. They're looking towards the blood sacrifice offered by God that would take away all their sins and grant them eternal life. And and that's the same faith we have. We just have the clarity of knowing who that blood sacrifice is, Jesus Christ. And so it's a great thing here we see in this man. And so when you put those two words together, mercy and reconciliation, it's almost as if the tax collector is saying, Lord, bloody me. Don't bloody me with my own blood, even though I deserve it. Bloody me with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Exactly. And, wow. And, and that Wow. Shivers up my spine. Wow. That mercy seat language there um, brings to mind all the things of the Old Testament. Moses putting the blood on the people. We have the idea of the Day of Atonement where the blood is poured on to the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And then we also have the idea of the uh, scapegoat who's had the sins cast upon it. And then Leviticus 16. Sent folks. out into the wilderness just as Christ was uh, tempted in the wilderness. We have all these things in that little tiny word that uh, it carries that weight with it. Yes, and uh, just a little caveat here. That's why your pastors uh, study Greek and Hebrew. That's why we're able to, uh, you know, you go to seminary, you learn these things, and you're able to bring out these little nuances that may or may not be reflected in the English translations that you have. And uh, that's that is such a beautiful key to understanding this parable. Now, at the end, Jesus, um, we have the wow moment in the parable. You would assume that the holy man, the Pharisee, is the one who is justified and that the scoundrel, the tax collector, is the one who is told, uh, you haven't done enough, go out and pay for your own sins. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Pastor, we use that word justify or justification a lot in church. Can, can you give us the uh, condensed version of what the word justification means and why it is so crucial in the life of a Christian? 
Uh, essentially, a real quick definition would be to be declared uh, not guilty for Christ's sake. Uh, and maybe that's kind of a quick, easy way to think about it. And I think that for Christ's sake part is the important part there, uh, especially in this man. Uh, he's not saved because he beat his breast. He's not saved because he did the action of confessing his sin. He's not saved uh, because he looked sad and reverent. Uh, he's not saved because he sat in the pew at church. He's saved because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. And I think even not to take us in circles here, but um, that justification, he understands and he says in his confession that it is Christ's work because the word, have mercy upon me, a sinner, that hilasterion word again, uh, that is in the passive voice again. So he understands in the words that he says that he doesn't have any action that he needs to do to make that happen, but rather he's passive and God is the one who's active in it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's a, uh, that's a beautiful reminder of the attitude here. And then we have, uh, you know, kind of the clincher, the punchline, uh, the, the moral to the story, if you want to look at it this way. Uh, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pastor, um, make it clear that it is not the attitude of humbling oneself that justifies and how is this attitude of humbling oneself a fruit of true justification? Well, the humbling yourself, in, and again, this is uh, translation issues, right? This is a, uh, a participular form here, the humble one. Right, the one who's humble in himself maybe would be a better way to say it. Good, and yeah. and that that means that someone or something has humbled you, right? We've all so been humbled. We know what that's right. Like. Um, and so it's not his action again; it's rather God's action again. What was the second part of your question? Um, and how that uh, humbling is a fruit of faith, right? Okay. Ra rather than something that causes us to be justified. Well, so that that's the thing. If we're humbled, it has to be done to us. And the way that happens is through hearing the word, the law calls our sin, uh, forth. It uh, reveals it to be sin. And, uh, so therefore we see God as the one who's doing that humbling. It's a fruit of the faith then, because necessary with that is also, uh, there's two parts to repentance. First, that we acknowledge our sin. And second, that we believe it's forgiven by God and his work in Jesus Christ. Both those things have to be present. And uh, we're going to see this uh, brought out beautifully in our epistle reading for today, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, where we have uh, Paul's great words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we are saved by grace through faith on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that good works naturally flow or follow a true living and saving faith. We need to get our order correct. And when we get that order out of whack, it leads us to that attitude of trusting in ourselves and treating others with contempt. That is not a God-pleasing attitude. That is... Um, I suppose I could say the epitome of selfishness, idolatry, and sin. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to look at a narrative from Genesis 4. Uh, a couple of guys you may have heard about, Cain and Abel. We'll be right back.
to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We are looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. Our bumper music today, that uh, that great, great hymn, Renew Me, O Eternal Light. And uh, as uh, we came back from break, we heard the verse that recounts Psalm 51, Created me a new heart, Lord, that gladly I may obey your word. That's really what we're talking about because we need that new heart in order to obey God's word. And that is pure gift. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit connects us by grace through faith to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only propitiation, the only blood sacrifice, the only true mercy from the mercy seat that can save us. Uh, our Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 4, 1 to 15. Um, this will take you back to your Sunday school days, folks. Vicar, take it away. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your brother, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Okay, Cain and Abel, um, we have a, a, a sad story. We have a story of God's call to repentance and the absolute rejection of that call that turns into um, 
Uh, it turned a peaceful protest into a uh, murderous riot, if we want to look at it in those uh, contemporary pictures. And then we see, at the very end, we see the mercy of God, even to a uh, murderer like Cain. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. <clears throat> Eve said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That seems awfully strange that Eve would reply in that way. What, uh, what's the rest of the story there, Pastor? What's, what's Eve really saying? Well, um, Eve uh, has just fallen into sin with Adam, and God's come and he's uh, explained what the solution for this sin is going to be, mainly that uh, one of Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head, uh, even as his heel is pierced, and that that will take care of sin. This is a prefiguring of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eve has heard that word of God, and that word has had the Holy Spirit create faith in her in that promise. And so when she has her son Cain, she remembers God's word, and she thinks that she has just born that Savior, that she has... Um, <clears throat> given birth to the one who will destroy Satan. And so when she says, I have acquired a man, and that, that word acquired is what the name Cain actually means, she's, she's talking about the promise of God. And in a way, then, she's trying to take that matter into her own hands by giving this name to him uh, to say this is the one God has promised, even though that one will not be born for quite a while yet. So it is clear that she believes the promise of God. Right. And yet by trying to... Uh, God on Eve's timetable, uh, she's, uh, she's not really clinging uh, in fear, love, and trust above all things. Um, and we do the same thing, right? Of course we, we do. We always want it to be on our time, not on God's time. We see that with uh, Abraham, right, uh, who uh, has been promised a child, but it hasn't happened, so he sleeps with his uh, uh, a concubine instead and has a son that way. And, and it's just a common thing to try and we talked about the other day, right, uh, with the people in Israel trying to rebuild the temple, thinking they can put God on their time schedule. That's not the way God works. It's uh, I don't want to I don't want to dwell on this. Uh, Luther speculates that Cain and Abel are twins, and that Cain is the firstborn, and immediately, just by the Hebrew construction, Abel is born uh, second. We don't know that for sure. That's just pure speculation. We're told that Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. And so Cain is a grain farmer, and Abel is a livestock farmer. And um, it's been amazing to me that sometimes people say, well, the, the reason why Cain's sacrifice was rejected was because he worked the ground. And the reason why Abel's sacrifice was accepted was because he took care of the sheep. And, uh, Pastor, that is utter folly. Um, why was Cain's sacrifice rejected and Abel's sacrifice accepted, especially when we look at the book of Hebrews? Well, uh, it's not so much the... Uh 
again, the action of what they're doing, but rather it's the faith that is behind the action. And that faith is demonstrated here in in Genesis in the sense that it just says Cain brought an offering, right? Uh, He's just going to put in the minimum amount of time in church that he has to. Uh, But Abel brought the first fruits. Abel uh, brought the things that were the prized pieces. He has faith behind those actions that is demonstrated in that. And Hebrews makes that idea very clear. It's the faith that's there that makes these things important. Uh, as we go forward. The uh, the fact that Abel brought the first fruits does not mean that since he put more in the collection plate, God loved him more. It was a fruit of faith that allowed Abel to give the best of the flock, and it was a lack of faith that had uh, Cain just throw a couple of bucks in because he was doing his duty. And uh, we need to make that very, very clear. This is not teaching us works righteousness, but there is some teaching that is uh, implied here. How did Cain and Abel, pastor, know that over the course of time, they should bring an offering to the Lord? Uh, how, How did they know that? Well, the only way they could know that is if God had said something to their parents uh, and then that they had listened to that word preached by their parents. And maybe even mom and dad brought them to church and said, we really screwed up and here's how God's going to take care of it. Amen, amen, amen. Okay. Uh, that, that's worth pointing out because so often today parents say, how can I tell my kids that they can't uh, drink and uh, sleep with people when I did it when I was a kid? And it's because when you screw up, it's good to admit it and tell your children not to do those same things. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so um, the uh, the Lord rejects Cain's offering. Cain is very angry. His face fell. He's pouting. Um, and uh, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at its door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Is God telling Cain, uh, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, suck it up, uh, do better next time, try, try. Uh, if you don't, if you don't succeed the first time, try, try again. Uh, or is God calling Cain to repentance? He is calling him to repentance, and again, these are words of faith. If you believe, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, uh, sin is crouching at the door and wants to rule over you, and that's that's kind of what he's saying in a way. And sadly, uh, Cain does not hear uh, with faith God's call to repentance, and instead he lashes out at his brother Abel. Sin is crouching at your door, God said. And what does Cain do? He uh, crouches in the grain field and he hides and he waits till Abel comes by and he leaps up uh, almost like a serpent would leap up and bite and attack. But he leaps up. He kills his brother. The uh, the, the blood of vengeance is crying out from uh, God. God <laughs> offers... Um, consequences for this sin. Um, You can farm all you want, but uh, your efforts are going to be frustrated. You're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. My punishment is greater than I can bear. That's a a true confession there, that uh, that's the truth for all of us. And it's before we get further, too, it's worth pointing out, too, what the name Abel means. It means breath. And so, in a sense, this is really uh, interesting in the sense that when God made Adam, he put the breath of life into him. And now his son, who has that same name, breath, uh, has been taken as a result of sin. Um, 
So yes, Cain. Cain is uh, he's busted. Uh, he uh, my punishment is greater than I can bear, and then uh, whoever finds me will kill me. Uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, kind of a thing. And then I want to I want to end here, Pastor, with verse fifteen. Then the Lord said to him, "Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold." And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. How is this response from God a response of mercy from God to Cain? Well, he's heard Cain finally make good confessions, right? This is bigger than I can bear. Uh, Cain's finally realizing that maybe he's not the Savior that uh, he thought he was his whole life, uh, even according to his name. And uh, now God has given him the gospel as well. No, you won't be killed. Here's your opportunity to succeed. This is what's going to happen. Here's how you're going to be taken care of. Um, And so he gives him a place to go, a thing to do, and says that vengeance will be taken sevenfold on anyone who takes your life. And that's that's an interesting thing there as well that I think also prefigures Christ in a way. Not to say Cain himself is the Christ-like figure, perhaps Abel is, but it also tells us that by his, uh, by Christ is the only way that Cain himself can be forgiven. It's, uh, it's beautifully ironic to me that after Adam and Eve sin, God throws them out of the garden. He puts the uh, angel at the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sin. And now Cain, who is worried about being murdered as he murdered his brother, has the mark of Cain put on him so that no one will kill him, so that he has the opportunity to live a life in repentance and faith, to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to live that uh, Christ-like faith that God has been calling him to all along. That is just, to me, that is amazingly ironic. And when we're kids, you know, you always say, well, what's the mark of Cain? But I I think we see that in when we do a baptism, right, where we put the mark of the cross both upon a child's forehead and its heart to mark them as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. In the same way, Cain is marked and, and allowed to live that life of repentance. So, It's similar here then to our baptism. Amen, amen, amen. We're going to take a short break, Proclaiming the One. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship, 3825 Wildbriar Lane, just north of 40th and Old Cheney. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages at 930, Family Bible Study in the Fellowship Hall. We also worship on Wednesday evenings at 630 Join us. Uh, We'd love to have you. All of our worship services uh, right now are a divine service. 
They're also broadcast on KNNALP 95.7 right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. If you're outside of our listening area, check us out on our radio website, thecross957.org. We have lots of resources available at our church website, goodshepherdlincoln.org. We'd love to have your feedback as well. And now on this Trinity 11, we take a look finally at our epistle reading, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. A marvelous example of how the epistle reading is a practical application of everything that we have just heard so far. Vicar, take it away. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow, if you want to know what it means to be a Lutheran, these 10 verses right here sum it up very, very well and very, very clearly. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, uh, etc. That was uh, oftentimes considered the great rallying cry of the Lutheran Reformation. It continues to be so. The, uh, the, the verses before that are extremely important, and if we don't have that, we can get mixed up very, very clearly. Um, Pastor, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins uh, in which you once walked. Uh, what kind of dead are we talking about here? Are we talking about kind of dead? Are we talking about mostly dead? Are we talking about... Um, you know, a metaphor for death, but we weren't really dead. Uh, what kind of dead does uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mean here? Can't help but think of Billy Crystal when you're talking about mostly dead. That's exactly the <laughs> word picture that I wanted you to think. Uh, we are completely and totally dead, whether we realize it or not. We're spiritually dead. We're uh, soon to be bodily dead. We are uh, not the living forever creatures that God had created us to be, and that's all a result of our sin. Uh, and, and that's what Paul is getting to here. So we're dead dead. Dead uh, dead. This is not a metaphor. Not mostly dead, dead, dead. Yeah, we are dead, dead, and uh, there is no spark of life in us, some some scintilla or any other silly nonsense. God's word is clear. We are dead in the trespasses of our sins, and not only are we dead, it's worse than dead, um, because by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, it'd be bad enough to be spiritually dead, but we are children of wrath. What, uh, what does that add to this, Pastor? Well, um, the wrath is the wrath of God, the anger of God, the frustration of God at us 
turning our backs on him and telling him we didn't need him in our lives. Uh, that's the sort of uh, wrath that we're talking about here. That's hell sort of talk. Uh, and you'll notice, too, it's not just us, but the rest of mankind is the words that are used there. That's for every single person that has ever lived in every single part of the world at any time in any place. And, and so it, you don't just need to go, you know, um, all have sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. That's very clear. But here, Paul's saying the very same thing in a different way. And uh, there are no loopholes here. Nope. There are no exceptions. Nope. And uh, this is a universal condition. There is no special privilege for any people of a certain class or a certain skin color. This affects all mankind. And uh, that would be pretty horrific if our text ended right there. But thanks be to God, it doesn't. Because immediately after that word mankind in Ephesians 2 verse 4, we have the word but. But. So often in Scripture... That word, but, is a transitional phrase bringing to us the gospel. So completely opposite of the condition that we are in, sinful object of God's wrath, God, notice where it starts, doesn't start with us, doesn't start with our response, doesn't start with our actions, but God being rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve, because of the great love with which he loved us. What is that great love with which he loved us, Pastor? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. I think it comes from uh, the epistle of John, uh, and that's the love that we're talking about. And no greater love is there than this, that one give up his life for his friends. That's the love, again, of Jesus Christ. That's love. Jesus is love. He's love incarnate. He's the very definition of love. Verse 5 here, I think, is so very, very important because uh, he was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, it wasn't like we had to clean up our act. We had to make ourselves alive. We had to invite him into our hearts. We had to do some great action to get God to notice us. We are completely dead and God's love makes us alive. Why is that so important in this particular culture and uh, milieu that we live in in Christianity? Well, again, it's, um, it's a passive action on our part. It's not our work at all, but God's work. Uh, and so many churches teach otherwise. They follow the Pelagian uh, uh, slant of things that you have to make a decision or you have a spark of good within you or you have to catch the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Uh, all these things where the action is up to you, but the reality is it's completely God's action. And maybe a good picture to get in your mind to help you understand that is <clears throat> a hospital emergency room with uh, the man laying on the gurney and the uh, heart monitor flatlining and buzzing, right? Uh, when that happens, all the doctors just stand there and wait for the man who's dying to reach out his arms, grab the paddles, rub them together, stick them to his own <laughs> chest, and hit the button, right? It doesn't work that way. He can't save himself in that regard. He must be saved by an outside external force. Uh, and for us, the same is true, spiritually speaking and bodily speaking, and that force that saves us is the love of Jesus Christ. I often think of John 11 and the death of Lazarus. 
you know, Lazarus is in the tomb. Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's stone cold dead. And Jesus does not say, uh, Lazarus, uh, make a decision and uh, wake up. Yeah, he doesn't even... He doesn't even say, Lazarus, if you want to come out, come out. You no. know what I mean? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And it's a good thing Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Otherwise, if he would have just said, come forth, by the power of Jesus' words, every dead body would have come out of the grave at that precise time. And he's saving that miracle for the last day. And I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. There's so much in this text. I wish we could spend some time on the fact that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. We'll save that word picture for another day. And that's uh, why we ought to act like it. Amen. Amen. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, the gift of God, not the result of works. Grace, gift of God, not the result of works. Why is that a timeless message for the church? Because we don't understand that. We always think we have to have some hand in it, right? Um, we always think that we have to have our little part to play, and we act accordingly, whether it be that we think we uh, have behaved well or we've donated enough money or we have said the right words or invited Christ in. We're always trying to find some way to put salvation on us. But the reality is, and this is good news, you can't do it. Only Jesus can. He's the one who saves, and he does. And he does. That's the key. Pure gift, pure gift, pure gift. Um, Pastor, the verse 10 here, Lutherans are often accused of uh, not encouraging good works. That is a false accusation. We just have them in the proper order. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is that proper relationship between the grace of God, which calls us to faith, and the good works of a believer? Well, again, to go back to my little analogy, the guy laying on the gurney in the hospital room uh, can't do any works when he's dead. Uh, but once he's made alive again, once he's brought back, uh, then he's free then to uh, show appreciation to the doctors and nurses who cared for him, to love his family appropriately since he's gotten the second chance of life, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We must be made alive before we can do the good works. And now that we are Christian, uh, if we properly understand the uh, teachings of vocation, we do good works without even realizing it all the time when we care for the people that God has placed into our life and when we worship God properly. Good works flow from faith. Faith is alive and active. It's not a dead thing. Our good works don't save us, but they are evidence or proof that our faith is alive. Vicar, would you uh, do us the honor by praying the collect of the day for the 11th Sunday after Trinity? Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things that we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele, it's always great to have you with us. Sunday morning when you get up, uh, read your paper, drink your coffee, whatever your regular Sunday routine is. Please pray for your pastors, but most of all, go to church. 
We'll see you again next week. God's richest blessings in the grace of God. <laughs>